This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. Welcome to the program. Expect to be joined a little bit later by uh, someone who's never been on the show before, but probably should have been. That would be David Watts Barton, longtime uh, cover of the pop music scene for the Sacramento Bee. And uh, for our money, probably the go-to guy when it comes to interviewing musical guests on the radio. David will talk to us about the new uh, Beatles catalog that's been re-released, remastered, and I don't know, revamped. We'll do that hopefully in our second segment today, but let us... Begin the show as we like to do with On This Date in History, the date in question being the 1st of October. It was on the 1st of October in 1880 that American inventor Thomas Edison opened his first light bulb factory in Menlo Park, New Jersey. The incandescent bulb changed the world. Unfortunately, 97% of the energy that goes into an incandescent light bulb goes into producing heat, not light. Which is why currently compact fluorescents and LEDs are taking over where Thomas started back in 1880. Ten years later on this date, October 1st, 1890, Yosemite National Park was established here in California, setting aside 1,500 square miles of spectacular alpine terrain in the Sierra Nevada mountains. On October 1st in 1915, in World War I, a combined British and Arab force captured Damascus from the Ottoman Turks thus completing the liberation of Arabia, or at least in the Western view. Among the commanders was T.E. Lawrence, the legendary British soldier, better known as Lawrence of Arabia. And if any of you, by the way, have never seen the legendary 1962 movie featuring, featuring Peter O'Toole, well, do yourself a favor and see it. Ten years later, on October 1st, 1928, Soviet dictator Joseph Stalin announced the first five-year plan a catastrophe for peasants that would collectivize agriculture and industrialize the Soviet economy. On this date in 1949, Mao Zedong proclaimed the People's Republic of China during a ceremony in Beijing. Sixty years later, his party, the Chinese Communist Party, is still in control of China. They seem to have modified their view over the decades of foreign capitalists, however, which has... I suppose, for the most part, been a good thing. And uh, to return back to where we began in this day in history in 1880, I'd like to note that the prolific American martial composer John Philip Sousa was named director of the U.S. Marine Corps Band. And since Sousa composed what should be the American National Anthem, this gives us a moment to do a brief musical interlude. Now, if the U.S. Congress would just get off its butt and make that the national anthem instead of the Star-Spangled Banner, we'd all be better off. And let's state right off the bat that any opinion you hear in this program does not, of course, necessarily represent that of KDVS, our sponsors, or the regions of the University of California. Although my understanding is that most of the regions are partial to the Stars and Stripes forever. Our quote of the day comes from Wilson Misner, who once said, I can usually judge a fellow by what he laughs at. 
And in fact, we like Wilson Misner so much, we're going to make him our quip of the day also, which is, I've spent several years in Hollywood, and I still think the movie heroes are in the audience. Mark my words, one of these days we're going to tell the story of Wilson Misner. Our joke of the day is as follows. Off the coast of America, two planes were flying. A C-130 was lumbering along when a cocky F-16 flashed by. The fighter jock then radioed the C-130 pilot and said, Watch this! He promptly went into a barrel roll, followed by a steep climb. He then finished with a sonic boom as he broke the sound barrier. The F-16 pilot asked the C-130 pilot what he thought of that. The 130 pilot said, well, that was impressive, but watch this. The C-130 droned along for about five minutes. The pilot came back on and said to the, said to the fighter jock, well, what'd you think of that? F-16 pilot asked, well, what'd you do? 130 pilot says, well, I stood up, stretched my legs, walked to the back, took a leak, got a cup of coffee and a donut. Now I'm back in the seat. Our stat of the day is October 15th. That is the day of this month wherein tax dodgers will have to disclose their hidden assets in offshore bank accounts. The IRS decided to extend the deadline of its amnesty program by 22 days because of the high volume of taxpayers coming forward. More than 3,000 have so far fessed up to hiding assets, which is quite a bit up from the 80 that admitted it last year. I think we ought to go right into the good, the bad, and the ugly. According to The Week magazine, it was a good week last week for being fruitful and multiplying. In revealing that Rachel Krzyzewski of Jerusalem, who had died at age 99, had left behind 1,400 direct descendants, 11 children, 150 grandchildren, about 1,000 great-grandchildren, and a few hundred great-great-grandchildren. We gather that uh, Miss Krzyzewski was not a big fan of zero population growth. It was noted that it was a bad week last week, however, for Cairo, when it was noted that uh, the Egyptian government, in a rather misguided attempt to combat swine flu, killed all the nation's pigs last spring. Now, of course, these streets of Cairo are filling up with mounds of rotting garbage, which used to be eaten by roving pigs. Said one community activist, killing the pigs was the stupidest thing they ever did. And if you're puzzled by why a Muslim country would have pigs in the street, you've got to keep in mind that Egypt is almost half Christian. In fact, the Coptic Christians of Egypt are one of the oldest of the Christian sects and are very proud of that fact. And finally, it was an ugly week last week for forgetting to log off after Jonathan Parker, 19 of Fort Loudoun, Pennsylvania, broke into a home and stole some jewelry. But left his Facebook account logged onto the victim's computer, which is how police identified him. All right, item from the Only in America file. 
Apparently a California man who deliberately walked into a fire at the annual Burning Man Festival in Nevada has failed to win compensation for the burns he sustained. It was noted that Anthony Beninati admitted that he walked into the embers of the festival's closing bonfire in 2005, suffering burns to his hands and legs when he tripped. But uh, last week, a court finally got around a ruling that the organizers of the festival had not been negligent, (laughs) saying that the risk of walking into a fire was obvious. All right, let's do some follow-up. We reported uh, on this program some months ago. We reported on an excellent documentary film titled Roman Polanski, Wanted and Desired, which detailed claims of judicial and prosecutorial wrongdoing at the time of Polanski's 1977 court case when the then 44-year-old director was accused of having consensual sex with a 13-year-old, something which he was guilty of. The, uh, the film uh, showed very clearly that there were some instances of inappropriate behavior by Judge Lawrence Rittenbond and suggested that uh, the continued uh, prosecutorial efforts against Roman Polanski did seem a bit misguided 31 years after the fact. This documentary must have galled some people down in Los Angeles because representatives for prosecutors there uh, noted that, um, well, to quote from Sandy Gibson, the spokesman for the L.A. County District Attorney's Office, Anytime word is received that Mr. Polanski is planning to be in a country that has an extradition treaty with the U.S., we go through diplomatic channels with the arrest warrant. So it was that when Polanski stepped, uh, stepped forward to the Zurich Film Festival last week, he was taken into custody. And we have to ask again on this program, don't the prosecutors down in L.A. have better things to do with their time? Do we here in California, in, in times of budgetary crisis, Want to actually spend large sums of money to extradite and prosecute Roman Polanski? Particularly in view of the fact that the victim in the case, Samantha Geimer, has long since publicly identified herself and expressed forgiveness for Polanski, who fled the U.S. on the eve of his sentencing. Polanski fled the country when uh, he became convinced, probably with good reason, that the judge in the case meant to backtrack on a plea arrangement and send him to prison. We may want to see if we can get a comment from uh, Vince Bugliosi on this matter. Bugliosi, of course, was the prosecutor of the Manson family, which murdered Polanski's wife, Sharon Tate, 40 years ago in August. Tate's actual murderess, Susan Atkins, was the one that died in prison uh, uh, last month after being denied a release on humanitarian grounds. I don't know. I think this whole thing is pretty pathetic. On a happier note, uh, we noted talking to Dan Bacher a month or two ago about the fact that there were stretches of the San Joaquin River which were maintained as dry riverbeds because if they were allowed to fill with water and salmon got back in there, the salmon might be entitled to some protection. Well, it's curious to note that uh, in the Sacramento Bee lead article on Tuesday of this week that, uh, well, some people are going to go ahead and apparently restore some of the salmon-producing uh, areas in the San Joaquin River by, by, by adding water. It is sort of amazing to contemplate that when they built the Freont Dam back in the 1940s, they basically just dried the river up. Dan Barker will be returning to the program in the next couple of weeks, and I'm sure we'll, uh, we'll talk to him more about that. By the way, I should note, it's kind of a dilemma week to week as to whether we want to take the longer view 
on, on a topic that's out there, or we just report something that's in the news. We, we try and find a happy medium. And it might, might be a good time to note that we always welcome your feedback, dear listeners. So if you've got a topic you want to see us talk about, why don't you drop us a line at info at radioparallax.com. We got an email two days ago from Sally, who ventured some opinions that I think I'll repeat. In her open letter to our listenership, she said, As a citizen and taxpayer, I'm responsible, as you are, for the conduct of our nation. So it's with thoughtful concern that I submit some reasons to get out of Afghanistan now. Number one, our 15-year experience in Vietnam. You cannot beat a committed indigenous population that intimately knows the terrain and the neighbors. Two, Russia's experience in Afghanistan. They fought from 1979 till they gave up in 1988, a war referred to as Russia's Vietnam. Three, England's experience in Afghanistan. The massacre at the Khyber Pass was one of the British Army's worst disasters. Afghanistan is not a nation. It's dozens of fiercely independent tribes that don't respect any kind of central government. Four, the main reason to increase the number of troops now is because we are there now. That's a circular argument. Five, we're propping up a corrupt government with little or no support outside of Kabul. And sixth, the military-industrial congressional complex has a tendency to want to go to war. According to E.C. Collier Congressional Research Service, the U.S. has had over 80 major military conflicts since Vietnam. Well, Sally, I'd like to see that tally, but that's an interesting statistic, and we welcome your input. also want to thank Joe for the email which asked, uh, asked my opinion on. It was an email titled, I think he would be my kind of president. And on, went on to quote the Prime Minister of Australia, Kevin Rudd, as having said the following. After prefacing it by saying that Muslims who want to live under Islamic Sharia law were told on Wednesday to get out of Australia as the government targeted radicals in a bid to head off potential terror attacks. The quote, in part, was supposedly the following. Immigrants, not Australians, must adapt. Take it or leave it. I'm tired of this nation worrying about whether we're offending some individual or their culture. Since the terror attacks on Bali, we've experienced a surge in patriotism by the majority of Australians. Most Australians believe in God. This is not some Christian right-wing political push, but a fact. Because Christian men and women on Christian principles founded this nation. This is clearly documented. It is certainly appropriate to display it on the walls of our schools. If God offends you, then I suggest you consider another part of the world as your new home, because God is a part of our culture. Well, this one wasn't passing the smell test. If you've ever been to Australia, you would note that they don't have a whole lot of rabid Christian fundamentalists running amok as we do here. And as a general rule, Australians are not really fond of pointing out details about the founding of their nation. Because if you know your history at all, you'll know that Australia was originally a penal colony. <laughs> it was founded not so much by Christians, but the criminal element of the British Isles. I wrote Joe back and said, I bet $2 this is BS. And after about uh, 30 seconds of searching on the web with Snopes.com and a few other places, it was revealed that yes, this was never said by Kevin Rudd. This, uh, no doubt, was fashioned by the McCain-Palin sore loser squad right here in America who are just trying to imply that, you know, our president is kind of a Muslim butt-kisser. We could sure use a guy like Kevin Rudd, don't you think? We also got an email from Millie who noted that uh, the recent poll that appeared on Facebook, Should Obama Be Killed?, 
with the choices being offered of no, maybe yes, and yes, if he cuts my health care. Prompted her note, if he cuts my health care? I've not heard that one before. That's more frightening than any other lies they're telling. Pull the plug on grandma. Fund abortion. Fund sex changes. Take care of the illegals. Yes, now apparently Obama wants to cut our health care. Apparently the Secret Service took a dim view of this poll and stepped in to have it shut down. Anyway, why don't we see if we can't hear from our good pal Will Durst, America's foremost political comic. Well, thanks, Doug. And today I'm here to warn you all to get ready for the return of the son of the swine flu. It's back, and this time it's personal. Scientists predict that the virus is going to be worse this time around, but face it, I mean, it's still not going to be 1919. After all, our water systems have been upgraded a bit over the last 90 years, now with less dysentery. And with the return of the H1N1 virus, don't want to disparage our proud American pork producers, you know we're about to be inundated with hundreds of tips on how not to contract it. So, as a public service, let me help out by giving a preview. Number one. Wash your hands. But you knew that, right? I mean, if soap and water aren't available, use an alcohol-based rub. Brandy is good. Number two, wear a mask. If you can't find one of those scrub masks, try a Halloween mask. I mean, what's a pandemic without a little fun? Number three, drink plenty of fluids, preferably domestic beer. Then we just talk about how alcohol inhibits bacteria growth. Number four, Cover your nose and mouth with a tissue when you cough or sneeze, then throw the tissue in the trash after you use it, or collect them as a sort of swine shrine. Number five, wear light colors. No, wait, that's for heat advisories. But I guess it's still applicable for the flu, because that way we can see all the various effluviums accumulating in people's clothing and know whom to avoid. Number six, throw everything out. No, everything. Clutter causes confusion, and confusion leads to the flu. Number seven, stay away from sick people, which means don't watch Glenn Beck. And finally, number eight, try to find a way to sleep at work. After all, a rested employee is not a communicable employee. For Radio Parallax, I'm Will Durst. Anyway, I should note that as a practicing physician, I am exposed on the front line to whatever's going to the community, and I, I think I might have got the swine flu last week. I, uh, I had my suspicions and started Tamiflu pretty early, and I'm happy to report I wasn't sick for that long. Of course, it helps perhaps that I was alive back in 1968 and even 1957 when, uh, when it last made a, a pass through North America. We're going to follow the swine flu story and hope that uh, you will get your vaccinations as they become available. So far, uh, so good with swine flu. It's not turning out to be the virulent, uh, nasty uh, bug that uh, people feared a few months ago, but that could all change. You can't ever be quite sure to how that sort of thing is going to mutate. In the meantime, wash your hands and uh, try and uh, try and not touch your face after you've had contact with other people, at least till you've had a chance to uh, put some uh, waterless hand cleaner on or give give your hands a scrub. Easier said than done, I know, but you know, do your best. I guess that's our public service announcement for the day. 
Anyway, I'm Douglas Everett. You're listening to Radio Parallax. Let's take a short break. Have you seen the little biggies crawling in the dirt? And for all the little biggies, life is getting worse. Always having dirt to play around Starched white sheds, you will find the bigger piggies stirring up the dirt. Always have. 